Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Welcome back to Faith in Your Recovery. Thanks for joining us today. We look forward to sharing with you, giving you hope, giving you help, encouragement. Hope you can take away from this a better day, a better recovery, and the next right step. Our guest today is Shane Earhart. Welcome, Shane. Thanks, Randy. It's good to have you with us. Look forward to what you have to share. I know it'll be beneficial to a lot of folks. Well, I hope so. I always say if I can just reach one person, then um, the job's done. Uh, you know, you can't obviously reach everyone, but if I can just reach out and help one person today, that would be amazing. That's what we're about in all things recovery, and we just want to be able to give what we can and offer what we can, and it's up to the folks who are listening to pick it up and work it, right? That's absolutely correct. We can't do it for them. No, no. We, we say all the time in the NA community, uh, carry the message, not the addict. So. There you go. Carry the message, not the addict. I like that. I don't think I've heard that. That makes a lot of sense and covers a lot of ground. That's good stuff. Absolutely. So, Shane, go ahead. Share share with the folks some personal things about you right now, some of your likes, hobbies, what you do for a living, uh, family, whatever. Go ahead and share, please. Okay. Well, um, so right now I'm uh, actually a manager at Texas Roadhouse here in Anderson, um, which is uh, interesting to say the least with you know, the staffing shortages and everything, uh, it, it brings a lot of stress, but it's, it's a very rewarding and enjoyable career. Um, something I would have never pictured myself doing a few years back. Uh, but I'm pretty happy with it. Um, I live here in Anderson. I'm not originally from Anderson. I'm a transplant, um, originally from Hartford city, but, um, I've been here for about five years, uh, live here with my fiance. Um, hopefully, in the near future, we'll be getting married and, and uh, that looking forward to that and being able to do that also. Uh, I have a daughter. Uh, she lives up north. Uh, she's 19. Um, love her with all my heart. She's been there through everything, put her through a whole lot, uh, but she's never stopped loving her dad. So um, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And that's got to be very meaningful to you because as you look back, I'm going to guess there were times you didn't think you were very lovable. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, she loved me when I didn't love myself. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back. Let's talk about some of those times, how you got into your addiction, uh, you know, what you believe led you there and led you down that spiral. Tell the folks. Well, so I, I like to tell people, I don't think I'm a typical addict. Um, a lot of addicts you hear say they started using at 9, 10, 12 years old. Um, I didn't pick my first drug up until I was 18. Um, I, I was raised by my grandparents, and they kind of took me away from my mom, uh, and I really was sheltered. Uh, and looking back on that, um, I, I think they were trying to be the best people they could be for me, uh, but in in reality, I don't think it really helped things a whole lot. Um, and 
what happened was, is I developed a, a sense of abandonment um, because I felt like that my mother had abandoned me and my grandparents picked me up. Um, and then later on in life, things kind of got reversed and I almost felt abandoned from them. And my story kind of entails the searching for connection, uh, searching for acceptance and things that I couldn't find in life that I found through the use of uh, illegal drugs. What were your drugs of choice in the beginning, Shane? So it started off pretty simple. Um, it was just pot. Uh, and so funny, funny twist. So I, I didn't have my first drink of alcohol until I was 21. Um, and then I didn't stop drinking until I was 22. Uh, and I seen there was a problem. So my grandfather was an uh, um, alcoholic and I never seen him take a drink, uh, but he was a very unhappy alcoholic. Uh, you could tell he was unhappy that he wasn't drinking. So I felt like I was going to have a problem with alcohol, right? So after about a year and I seen where alcohol was leading me, I decided I, I couldn't drink anymore because I was going to be an alcoholic. And that scared me. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. Uh, I didn't want to be like, you know, my grandfather and, and I come from a long line of alcoholics and addicts, uh, it runs in the family. I really feel like there's a genetic predisposition for alcoholism and addiction. No doubt about that. So I didn't want to be that alcoholic. Um, so I kind of stopped using alcohol and switched to drugs, which, you know, looking back, doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, but that's, that's where it led. And I started out using, um, using marijuana and it just excelled from there. Uh, there was some, exacerbating circumstances. Uh, when I was 21 years old, 22 years old, uh, it was January 9th, 2000. Um, my best friend put a gun underneath his chin and pulled the trigger uh, about 30 feet from me. Um, so you saw this happen? It, yeah, it was, it, was, it was just down the staircase from where wow. I was standing. Uh, we had been drinking for <clears throat> five or six days. Um, partying for you know the new year celebrating the millennium and things but that was the night that i took my first pill uh, i came home that night and my grandmother she had some stuff that helped her sleep and i woke her up and said hey you know uh hagen shot himself tonight um i can't sleep can i get can i get one of those pills that you take to help you sleep i didn't know obviously what it was going to lead to at that point in time but it led to um, 20 years of continuous use of opiates and um, other, you know, related drugs like that. Wow. Wow. There are those moments that just totally change our world. And obviously that was one of them. It was. And, and I, don't, I don't believe that she would have ever given me that pill had she have known where this was going to lead because oh, it sure. not only took me down that rabbit hole, but it took me, her and, and everyone around me down that rabbit hole. Right. So one of the hardest things to do in addiction is look and see how what you're doing affects other people. And you can't really do that in the moment, but looking back on it, I can see how my actions affected everyone around me. And that was including her. Hindsight's twenty twenty. When we're in the moment, it's such a blur, as you said. We can't see what it's going to create and how many it's going to take down with us. I believe with all my heart it takes a village to help someone recover, and through the addiction we can sink that same village. So it's, 
you know, it's an effort by everybody and everybody around you. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So let's move on ahead there. During that time, what was it like for you during your your times of, you know, greatest struggle? Uh, what were some of the losses? What were some of the, the dark moments you encountered? Tell us a l- little about that, Shane. So <clears throat> what happened after uh, I was introduced to the, the prescription medication is it kind of took me on, on uh, a multi-year uh, binge. And I was doing a lot of doctor shopping. Um, there were, at, at one point in time, uh, there were five people in my household, um, and all five of us were going to different doctors getting prescriptions for different opiate medications. Um, and the thing about opiates is, you know, once you start using them, it takes more and more and more of that drug to get you to where you were at before. <clears throat> so once I got to that point, um, I couldn't I couldn't get there anymore off of that drug. And like I said, looking back, I was still looking for that acceptance and still looking for that connection with other people that I haven't been able to get. Uh, and. So a couple of buddies of mine introduced me to the syringe and man, um, to say that I fell in love instantly, love at first sight would not even begin to describe the feeling that I had from that. Uh, and I continued to do that for, uh, for quite a long period of time, but the opiates kind of fell off. What happened? You know, the doctors stopped prescribing them. They were harder to get. Uh, they became very expensive. So I found a way to get them uh, by manufacturing meth. Um, I started cooking and using methamphetamines, and I was trading the methamphetamines to people for the opiate pills. Uh, it it was it was uh, uh, lucrative to say the least. Um, and but what ended up happening is in in 2012, um, I got raided uh, by five different police departments and law enforcement agencies, state police. They raided my house and. Were you uh, at home during that time? I, I was. Uh, someone had told them that I was going to be manufacturing that night, so they raided my house. I was not. I was in the house, but I was there with my daughter, uh, who was 10 years old at the time, my wife, uh, now my ex-wife, and my mother. Um, the cops came in, and they took me and my ex-wife to jail <clears throat> that night. They ended up down the line taking my mother to jail as well. Um, but they arrested me and charged me with, um, an A felony, a B felony, multiple C felonies. Uh, it was, um, jarring, um, especially the first plea agreement they brought me while I was in jail was for 45 years. And I thought that I was going to die in prison. I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life in prison at that point in time. I was 34 years old, uh, looking at 45 years in prison. So, um, you know, when we talk about isolation and we talk about connections and things, when you're looking at that much time in prison, all that stuff goes away. So here I am again, sitting in prison with no one, because at that point in time, my brother was in prison, my wife was in prison and my mom was in prison. So my entire family unit was broken up and put in, in different prisons where we couldn't connect with each other. Uh, that was probably one of the lowest points 
uh, that I've ever had in my life right there. I can't imagine you've talked over and over about your need for connection after that abandonment, which makes total sense. And then I think if I was counting properly, when you were needing it the most, there were three others of your family who had no way to get to you because they were incarcerated. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Wow. Wow. That had to be a sense of desperation. Uh, can't imagine what that was like. So how did you battle through that? So, yeah, go ahead. Well, you would think, and this is where the, the disease of addiction is so baffling, because you would think that once you go through something like that, uh, that you know, that would be your rock bottom. That would be your point where you're going to change your life. And especially, um, I'd been there for about five years, um, four and a half years. In prison. In prison. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so I was there for a long time without a visitor or anything, as we discussed, because, you know, everyone was, was incarcerated. And we eventually got my mother approved to come and see me. Uh, I hadn't seen my mom in four years. And um, when I went to prison, my mom was my best friend in the world. Like, uh, you know, we did everything together. Uh, I took care of her. She was handicapped, and um, I, I took care of her and met her needs and things. Um, and when I got finally got to see her uh, four years later, it was the shell of a person. Um, it wasn't even the same person that I remembered. She was still in the throes of active addiction and had no desire to stop. And I begged her at that visit. I'll never forget I asked her, or I told her, I said, Mom, you're going to die. You have to stop doing what you're doing. And she said, Shane, I don't understand why people keep telling me that. Just let me live my life. And Randy, when she walked out of the visit room that day, I knew that I was never going to see my mom again. Um, I knew there was no way. And about eight months later, um, it was in November of 2016, I called home that morning to let my brother know that I was going to be graduating um, the rehabilitation and the therapeutic community program at the prison, which was going to grant me an early release. And I was super excited about it. And when I called that morning, he told me that um, our mom had passed away. Uh, so I was in prison. Obviously, they would not let me out. Um, I didn't get to go to her funeral. Uh, I didn't get to say goodbye. Um, and... So again, kind of spinning off that, you would think that would be enough to say, you know what, I watched my mom die, multiple, multiple friends and family members overdose and die while I was in prison. That's gonna be enough. I've spent you know, five and a half years in a maximum security prison. Um, it's time to change your life. Well, in 2017, I got out and that's how I ended up here. They brought me here to the, um, the work release center here and I got out and I started making some connections with the recovery community and I was going to meetings um, because they made me. Uh, but as soon as that accountability went away, my meeting attendance started dropping. Um, my connections to the recovery community went away and I was out about a month and I was back on the same drug that I was using when I went, when I went to prison. I was right back in the meth game where I was at when I went to prison. Um, you talk about insanity and, and you know, powerlessness. Um, that just speaks of all that because, like, I, I didn't have any control at that point in time. Um, the only way I knew to cope with my sense of loneliness, I was here by myself. Again, I'm in Anderson. I lost all my connections to the recovery community. 
none of my family's here. Uh, my mom is deceased. Uh, I had since divorced my wife. Um, my brother was up north. Um, I was here all alone. And I dealt with that loneliness the only way that I had known how, um, by, by using. So um, after doing all that time and losing my mom and all that stuff, I went right back to what I knew, uh, the only thing that I'd ever knew that brought me comfort, and that was the use of drugs. Uh, so I ended up back in jail um, not too long after that. Um, I picked up uh, 23 felony charges here in Madison County uh, for credit card fraud and burglary. Um, I don't even remember doing most of it. Uh, but again, I was still on probation in Blyford County um, with a whole bunch of time still hanging over my head from that first case. So I had just resigned the fact that I was going back to prison. Um, and, you know, Randy, at one point, I can remember walking the streets of Anderson and just deciding that this was my destiny, that God had destined me as an addict on earth to walk around using drugs, getting high, um, doing bad things to people. And to think that I could think that way about God and that he had put me here for that reason, it was just a rationalization and a justification for what I was doing because I was not okay with what I was doing. I knew the things that we're doing were bad, but I needed to justify those in some way so I could keep sure. doing them, right? Um, so I ended up back in jail uh, here in Madison County, but that was a point that changed my life. You were talking there, you had, what did you say, like 23 charges or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, burglary and other things, was that to feed the habit, the burglaries and the credit card fraud that you mentioned? It was, um, at that point in time, I didn't have a job. Uh, and I didn't have means to get the drugs that I needed uh, to, you know, quote unquote, feel better. Um, so, you know, as addicts, we're going to do whatever we have to do to get yes. that next drug, right? And that's what I did. You know, I'm of the understanding after speaking with, the, you know, several sheriffs and different ones concerning those in their jails that somewhere between 90 and 95 percent of those incarcerated in our jails are there as a result of drugs, not direct drug charges, just like you said, the credit card fraud the burglaries to get that money to buy that drug. And so I was going <laughs> to, as you were going through that, you made a comment. I was going to ask you to explain how that could happen. Then you used the phrase something about your powerlessness and just the pull that drug had, the control it had over your life. So you pretty well explained that. What do you say to folks out there who are just shaking their heads saying, get over it, uh, you know, just stop kind of thing? What do you say to those folks? Well, you know, there's a lot. I was one of those people, um, even in the middle of my addiction, uh, to look at another addict when they would go and say, I'm an addict. Uh, well, just stop using. Um, and if only it were that easy, right? I mean... Uh, to tell an alcoholic not to take a drink, um, the alcoholic would love to not take a drink. Um, to tell an addict not to use, um, you know, as a recovering addict, uh, that would have been that would have been a dream for me. Um, the thing I can tell you is that most people who are in active addiction 
don't want to stop. Um, they might they might convey or relate to somebody else, you know, man, I need to quit doing this. But at the same time, in the back of their mind, they're still thinking about using because an addict's brain just operates different um, than, than a normal human's does. Uh, we think differently. Um, our thought patterns are different. Um, you know, our feelings and emotions are different. Uh, the way those are sent to the brain, um, those signals the brain picks up are different than, than a normal person's. Those sensors, those transmitters, what gives you that adrenaline rush? And everybody in life's after an adrenaline rush, uh, be it through fast driving, be it through sports, be it through so many things. And that's the way that so many addicts find theirs. Well, and, you know, I've talked to my therapist about this uh, many times, and that's a lot of where my criminal conduct, I believe, and, and we believe, came from. When I couldn't get access to that drug, I got the same, uh, the same release of that chemical in my brain from the criminal conduct, right? So when I couldn't get the drug, my brain still craved that release of, of that, uh, that chemical, and I did it through criminal conduct. So my criminal conduct was just a big of part of my, you know, of my addiction as drugs were. Okay, that dopamine, yeah. being able to, to get that to flow would lift you up and give you that moment's satisfaction regardless of the consequence to follow. Absolutely, because at, you know, at that point, it doesn't matter what the consequences are. Um, the addict's thinking is, I'm going to do what I need to do now and then I'll deal with whatever comes from this later, yeah. right? Because that's not happening right now. Okay, let's go back. You said you had those 23 charges, plus I think you said some other charges back in Blackford County. Mm -hmm. How'd all that play out? Well, <clears throat> so it all ended up leading me to where I'm at now. Um, and when I got caught on the, uh, the, the charges here in Madison County and they went back to Blackford County and they violated my probation and they were just going to send me back to prison uh, because they were done messing with me. This was my third violation of that, of that case. Habitual offenses. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so they sentenced me to um, five more years in the Department of Corrections. But the judge up there stayed that sentence because I was seeking drug court here in Madison County. Now, I, I won't lie to you, in the beginning, I wanted drug court because I knew it was going to get me out of jail. Um, that's an easy way out. And then a lot of people use that to get out of jail and then just take off again, right? Um, and in the beginning, that was absolutely my plan. I just need to figure out how I can get out of here to be able to use again. Um, but, you know, that kind of changed um, throughout, the, throughout the line a little bit. But I ended up getting drug court here in Madison County. Um, they had sentenced me to six years in the Department of Corrections here on top of the five um, in Blackford County, and they stayed that sentence as well. Um, Judge Dudley um, saved my life that day. But it's funny because he told me in court, uh, I'm going to give you this program. You can't complete this program. Um, looking back, and he was looking at my file. He had everything out, all the things that I had done in my life. And looking at that stuff, he had made a decision that, you know, I think that ethically he needed to give me the program um, as a part of their whole, you know, judicial system here. But he had absolutely no belief that I was going to complete the program. And I used that 
for a long time as external motivation. That reverse um, psychology kind of yeah. thing, yes. And I think that's almost, I almost think that's what it was. Like, he knew me as a person, and he knew if I tell this guy he can't do it, He's going to do it, right? Well, I've told him for years he can't do the drug, and he does it. So if I tell him he can't do this, maybe he'll uh, Absolutely. bring it along. Absolutely. So go ahead with that, how that played out. So they, they put me in drug court here, um, and I've been in um, the Madison County Jail, uh, or MCCC, for about eight months. So they released me from there to work release, uh, and here uh, in drug court you start your program in work release and there's different stages you have to work your way out of work release and then into a halfway house and out of a halfway house into a three-quarter house and then out of a three-quarter house into your own apartment and things right so i started out in uh, work release and when i started i still had uh, the reservations that I was going to use. Um, I was just going to slide by in this program. I um, was going to do what they told me to do and do what I needed to jump do. Jump through the hoops. Jump through their hoops until I could get done with the program, and then I could use again. Uh, because I still had it in my mind that I could use successfully, right? That there, you know, I wasn't an addict. Uh, I, I wasn't, you know, this person that had to have drugs all the time. I could, I was this person that could just do them every now and then. Recreation. Yeah, right. Uh, and, you know, looking back on that, I don't think there is a recreational I don't user. Either. Um, I think if you're using drugs that, that there's a, there's a sense of addiction there somewhere. There's um, no experience or yeah. excuse me, no experimenting. It's going to get you. It absolutely is. And, you know, I'm, I'm testament to that. Uh, you know, the first time I took a pill, um, from that point on, I, I was an addict. I was hooked and I was an addict before then. I just didn't know it. Um, so I, I did pretty well, uh, in the work release program somewhere along that line. And I can't really identify, um, where that spiritual awakening happened. Um, but somewhere along the line, and I know that I seen other people, people that I had been using with that I'd been, you know, seen on the streets, hanging out with and stuff, and they were living differently. And I kept watching them and seeing, you know, how they were moving and what they were doing. And I thought, man, I want that. Like, these people are laughing and cutting up in these meetings where I'm sitting over in the corner mad because I got to be there or on my phone or not paying attention. I want what they have. And in the beginning, I, I thought that someone could just give that to me, right? I could get a sponsor and he was going to give me the gift of recovery, um, I didn't understand or know exactly how hard it was going to be uh, to work towards that, that recovery. Um, and I also, in the beginning, didn't understand the, the difference between, you know, abstinence, not using, and true recovery. Yes. So uh, my therapist helped me out with that a lot. Drug court, um, Madison County Problem Solving Court saved my life, um, not just by not putting me in jail or in prison, but by setting me up with the the tools and the resources that I needed to be successful, because I didn't know how to do that myself. And I'm not ashamed to say that I was a 42-year-old man that acted like an eight-year-old child. And I'm not blaming anyone, but I, I know that, you know, the coddling and um, the only child treatment that I got from my grandparents that played into that a lot because I was used to getting what I wanted when I wanted it. 
Um, and a lot of it was handed to me. I didn't have to work for it. So when it comes to recovery, I was expecting somebody to do the same. Um, just hand me this recovery. And, you know, uh, you and I both know that's not the way it works. <laughs> At least not successfully, okay? <laughs> right, that's absolutely get, correct. Get you through the moment <laughs> won't get you through the rest a lot. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was, I started this program in 2019. Um, and... There was a lot of bumps and a lot of trials and tribulations uh, throughout the whole um, the drug court program. Um, I had a lot of growing up to do. Um, I had a lot of learning to do and um, just a lot of growth as a, a person. Um, I wasn't I wasn't emotionally or or mentally where I needed to be at all. Uh, and, you know, when you use um, I, I like to think that, you know, your mind doesn't ever grow, right? Because you're numbing your mind with this drug and you don't ever get it a ch give it a chance to grow and give it a chance to experience uh, life. It stunts the entire process, your maturation, your, your ability to grasp knowledge, everything. I've heard it said that there's somewhere in that age range of like 12 to 22 you're using, you become addicted, you lose those years. So it takes a while. I think you said of 42, you acted like an eight-year-old. You had a lot to pick up, a lot to raise up, a lot to recover, not just recover from the the addiction but to recover from everything you had lost and to bring that up so that had to be a lot of work it was and it was a it was a, a scary task at first because i was trying to make up for so much time so quickly um that i almost tripped myself up uh, many times and you know it wasn't for my case manager who man we butted heads so bad when i first started because i didn't want to surrender to anybody and i didn't want to you know admit to anyone that i was powerless or i didn't have control over things i'm a grown man and you know i'm supposed to be in control of what's going on um but it wasn't until i started working the the 12 steps and and you know, I was very against going to these 12-step meetings at first. Um, I had a, a real stigma in my mind of what these meetings were. And be, I think a lot of that is because I remember going to the AA meetings with my grandfather when I was young and seeing these guys sitting around smoking cigarettes and they were all mad because they weren't able to go out to the bar. And I didn't want to be a part of that. So I was really close-minded about the whole thing. Um, and... I got a sponsor and I started working the steps and, you know, I, I worked the first step and I, I'll kind of preface this by letting you know, I, I don't advocate any one path to recovery. I feel like that, um, there's, you know, multiple paths and everyone's different and everyone's recovery story is different. Everyone's path to recovery is different. Um, never would I say this is not going to work for you because I don't know if it's going to work for you or not. I know what worked for me and I can speak to what worked for me but that doesn't mean it's the only way to recover. Um, and I think there's a lot of closed-minded people out there that will tell you, you know, you have to do it this way or you're not going to get better. You know, we don't get into the addiction by the same path. We're not going to get out of it by only one path. Thank you for sharing that. People need to know those who don't understand. So go ahead. So 
once I started working the steps and, and, you know, the first step is to admit you were powerless over your addiction. Your life had been unmanageable. Um, looking back on my life, I don't think there's any way that I could say that my life was not That's hard to unmanageable. deny, isn't it? Right. Um, you know, in and out of prison, in and out of jail, uh, death, addiction, um, legal troubles. Um, I hadn't had a driver's license in 20 years, right? Um, but but drug court helped me get all that stuff back in line. So um, working the steps and and just taking the advice from other people, going into uh, a room and listening to the guy that's got 25 years of clean time and, and picking up on what he's talking about and putting those practices into my life because anybody can go in and listen, right? And anybody can read a book, but taking what's in that book or taking what somebody else is saying and putting that into practice in your life is a whole different situation. Um, that requires work. And a lot of people don't want to put that work. I was one of those people. I didn't want to put that work in. We're ready. <laughs> that's, that's what it kind of boiled down to. Um, but admitting I was powerless and then understanding that God had a plan for me. And that plan wasn't roaming the streets, robbing people and getting high. That's not, that's not how my God works. And being able to live my life today in God's will and not in Shane's will, that's a huge step for me because I always wanted what I wanted when I wanted it, and I went and got it. We're um, selfish people, and I think, and pardon me, folks, don't say this to offend anyone, but those in addiction may be as selfish as anyone because it certainly becomes an I, I, I me, me, me world. You think so? Oh, absolutely. It's all about you as the addict and it, you know, everyone else, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you're hurting or who you're taking from or what you're doing as long as you get what you want. And I think that the conditioning that that brings on when you say, I spent 25 years in active addiction. And I think that the conditioning that that brings on when you spend that much time in, in active addiction is my thinking was centered around Shane and Shane only. Um, people that were reaching out, trying to help me, uh, my fiance, my fiance has been my greatest supporter. Um, super, she is, um, you know, right behind me 100%, but she's also there to kick me in the butt when she sees Hooray that things her. are going down the wrong path, right? Hooray she's not afraid her. to do that at all. So, um, I, I think though, one of the biggest motivators I had when I first started was my brother, uh, my brother was getting ready. When I first started drug court, my brother was almost completing his. And I can remember telling uh, Katie Stapleton when she did my um, my uh, intake for drug court, and she asked me, you know, uh, what's your motivation behind all this? And I told her, I can't let my little brother beat me at this. Like, uh, you know, he's, he's up there, and he's just doing great and he's about to graduate and you know I can't let my little brother beat me um so you know that that all started in, in 2019 and I sat here today um in the middle of March and God willing uh I'll be graduating drug court um May the 18th and um by the end of May May 31st will be my three-year clean date uh, it's the longest that I've been uh, consecutively clean since I was 18 years old. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank That's you. That's worthy of celebration. And you use the phrase, if it's God's will, I can't imagine it not being his will to see you recovered and to see you living the life he created for you. Oh, absolutely. No, I can't now. Um, like I said, I, I, I didn't have a problem doing that before, but a lot of that was just 
you know, Shane knew what I was doing was wrong. Um, and I knew, you know, through uh, the the raising of my by my grandparents and things, I knew right from wrong. Um, no doubt in my mind, I knew right from wrong. But I also didn't care. Uh, I didn't care if I was doing right or wrong until after the fact. And I needed a way for me to be okay with doing bad things. You bet. So, you know, I, I justified that by saying this is what I'm here for. Uh, and that's a really desolate path to go down. To think that the one the one entity that cares about you and loves you no matter what would put you here to do those kind of things, it really puts you in a bad frame of mind. Yeah, but you know what? It didn't put him in a bad frame of heart because he kept loving you and he's got to where he wants you today and moving you forward from there. Absolutely. So, Shane, what would you like to say to those out there who are in the midst and the throes of their addiction or even struggling to find recovery? Give them a few words of personal advice. Again, it's not the only words of advice, but they'll be yours. Absolutely. Um, I, I think through all this, what I found, and I got to credit Miss um, Stapleton at Drug Court for putting this in my head to begin with, but we combat addiction through connection. And I think the most important part of recovery is developing the connection with, you know, in NA, we like to say the winners um, or, you know, like I did, the people that, that you admire, the people who you want to be like, go out and make connections with those people. I, I was given my lead the other night and, and I said, you know, can I open my phone up right now and find a bag of dope? Probably, right? But I can also open my phone up and I have 150 recovery connection contacts in my phone that will say what you're getting ready to do is not the answer. Um, without those connections and without those people, I don't think I would be, I know that I would not be where I'm at today. So I would have to tell people that find the connections that you're looking for because I really feel like a lot of addiction is people who are lost and people who are lonely and people who don't think there's another way there is another way. And if you find the right connection with the right people, we can help guide you. Yes. We can help steer you and we can't do it for you, but we can help steer you in the right direction to get to where, you know, you're destined to be and get to where you want to be. Find connection to sum that up, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let's kind of wrap this up. I want to know your your personal take on our title, Faith in Your Recovery, what does that mean to you? You know, Randy, I was listening to uh, another one of these podcasts when you asked somebody that, and I asked myself that same question. And I think that can mean multiple things. Absolutely. Um, but to me, you have to have faith in your recovery. And you have to have faith in what you're doing is you're doing for the right reasons to get you to where you're supposed to be. And I think that, you know, having faith, obviously me being a 12-step person, I have faith in a higher power, a power greater than myself that I call God. But that doesn't necessarily mean the faith in your recovery part. Today, I have faith that my recovery will lead me to where I need to be. Thank you. We don't believe you've come this far to only come this far. Your answer, your healing, your recovery may be just around the corner, maybe in our next episode. Have faith in your recovery by having faith in yourself, your journey, and above all, God. Stay in the battle. God bless. God bless.